worker in that facility named Larry Verdeen, who has his girlfriend has since released text messages that she received from him, the last of which said that Amazon won't let us leave. And that was minutes before the tornado formed in the parking lot of that facility and, and tore the facility to shreds. I did say, it's on now, I gotta call the leadership, we gotta set a meeting, I, got, I need to contact my executive board, that's what I said. And we was like, we was, even, we was further than 20 feet of four then because I was exiting the, the door. So he fired me, terminated me for violence at the workplace. Menlo Park administration is challenging and saying that NLRB should not have jurisdiction, that it should fall under CERB, even though they're not willing to stipulate that if we file under CERB that they'll, that they'll recognize the union. So in other words, they're going to fight us no matter which way we go. I think we're weak in governance in terms of corporate actors and how do we hold them accountable for the, the very real public costs. And that's the ultimate question that I think we face in this coming decade as we are running out of time to limit our carbon footprint. Bookstores have always decried their tight profit margins, but when it comes to beating their employees out of joining the union, it's will spare no expense. I support the Politics and Prose Workers Union. Mr. Scrooge, Christmas is when our brothers and sisters feel most destitute. Brothers and sisters. So we're asking those who can afford it, men of means like yourself, to help us raise money for the poor and homeless. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone. We're in a deep historical trough of the working class movement in this country. Measured almost any way you want to measure it. Union membership, strike activity, long-term decline in real wages, on and on. But as my friend and, and, and colleague Jonah Furman says, the decline is over. Welcome to this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm Chris Garlock. To hear more labor shows, go to laborradionetwork.org, where you can search by name, topic, and location. On this week's show, hosts Michael Cathcart and Elliot Gilliland discuss the tragic workplace disasters that took place when tornadoes destroyed an Amazon warehouse in Illinois and a non-union candle factory in Kentucky on Labor Radio on KBOO. Workweek interviews New Orleans ATU 1560 president Valerie Jefferson, who was fired after standing up for her members during the hurricanes and dangerous conditions for their union and dangerous working conditions. On America's Workforce Radio, Ohio Federation of Teachers President Melissa Cropper discusses the difficulties faced by teachers attempting to unionize at Menlo Park in Northeast Ohio and some of the successes of neighborhood programming in Cincinnati schools. Then, on For a Better World, Shafali Sharma of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy discusses the role of big dairy in fueling the climate crisis and hollowing out rural communities. Plus, how the bosses stole Christmas on Union City Radio, the San Francisco mime troops, a red carol on your rights at work, and on Labor History Today, Striketober and the Great Resignation. Take this job and shove it. That's all ahead on the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show.
Welcome to Labor Radio. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gilland. Thank you so much for joining us. In the aftermath of a rare string of December tornadoes that touched down last Friday night on December, which left 80 people dead across six states, labor activists and really anyone who has been paying attention to this story are questioning why employees at two large work sites in the path of destruction were left uh, so exposed to danger. And of course, I'm referring to a candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, that was leveled by a massive tornado. Eight of the 110 employees working that night were killed, and many more were injured. And then at the same time, about 200 miles away, an Amazon delivery station in Edwardsville, Illinois, was also hit by a tornado during their shift change, which caused the roof to fly off and part of an exterior wall to collapse, and that killed six workers ranging in age from 26 to 62 years old. The, uh, the first tornado warning for Edwardsville, Illinois, where the Amazon delivery station was issued around 30 minutes before the deadly twister formed. So that means that there was plenty of time for, for the management to send the workers home or to proper shelter. However, workers from both of those facilities have said that their supervisors would not let them leave and instead told them to take shelter in place. The problem with the places in which they were taking shelter is that neither of them were particularly tornado safe. Um, buildings. They were buildings full of potentially flying and falling debris, and the buildings did not have basements or even proper storm shelters in them. We'll start by discussing the Amazon facility in Edwardsville, Illinois. And there was a, a worker in that facility named Larry Verdine, who has his girlfriend has since released text messages that she received from him, the last of which said that Amazon won't let us leave. And that was minutes before the tornado formed in the parking lot of that facility and, and tore the facility to shreds. Now, in the aftermath of this tragedy, Amazon workers from around the country have spoken out about the abhorrent lack of safety considerations in their workplaces. They are also demanding change and accountability. A lot of times on this program, when we talk about like collectively bargained kind of negotiations and things like that, a lot of the assumption is that it's all around wages and these other sorts of things. But yes. I think it's really important to remember that a lot of the big wins we've talked about on this show involve way more than that. And yeah. they involve things like this about trying to make sure that processes and communication, lines of communication are clear between management and the workforce and that people f have the ability to feel safe where they work. Unfortunately, there have been just endless reports of Amazon workers from around the country saying that they have never received any emergency training from the company themselves yeah. uh, itself. And like so many other issues of workplace exploitation and hardship that we've covered on this show in the past, the lack of training around emergency situations is likely connected to Amazon's uh, reliance on contractors and temp workers rather than, you know, the actual hiring actual employees. Well, and that itself, I think, is a symptom of their business model yes. and how it do isn't actually as strong as it seems. The the thing that is foremost in their decision making process is not the safety of the people who are doing the work for them or anything like that. It's how can we make the squeeze the most money out of any particular situation. And unfortunately, yeah, the practice of bringing on contract workers or temp workers allows the company Amazon to evade liability for work related accidents. That's true of other companies like Uber and things like that as well. Amazon has such a high turnover or you know, burnout rate that a large portion of the workers in any given facility at any one time are often fairly new and they may not be familiar with the best escape routes or like sheltering locations in that space. 
And unfortunately, out of the 190 workers at the Edwardsville delivery, only seven of them were full-time employees of that of Amazon. And it is very likely that those seven employees, a majority of them were probably the supervisors who were there insisting that the other workers not leave, that they could not leave. Yeah, Amazon workers, for their part, are also decrying the company's ban on carrying personal phones on the job, which they believe had left those workers unable to get warnings or updates about the, the impending tornadoes. Uh, or they were unable to contact people during those emergencies to let them know where they were safe or if they were safe or not. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has opened um, an investigation into the Edwardsville disaster, but Warehouse Workers for Justice is demanding state hearings into Amazon to establish protocols around the construction of new warehouses. Marcos Cisneros of Worker, Warehouse Workers for Justice, who is he is the interim director of that organization, said in a, in a statement after these, these events, that these warehouses are popping up all over the place very quickly. We need to take a second to pause and make sure this is happening responsibly with the workers and communities in mind. Which is very true because if the workers and if the state doesn't intervene to make sure that the way that the company builds its facilities or structures them or anything has the safety of the community and the workers in mind, it's pretty much guaranteed that as we just discussed, Amazon will not consider that. that will not be part of their consideration for how they build their places. Amazon is a clear representation of where the future of employment is going in our society. More contract workers, more you do the things that they demand of you and meet their, their quotas and things or you're fired immediately. And so if this is how they are choosing to treat during forewarned environmental emergencies now, one can really only imagine how they will react, how badly they will react in the future when they are responsible for the fate of even more Americans because they employ more people as climate change related disasters increase in frequency, intensity, and in unpredictability. So that's, it's a pretty scary thought, but like, it's something that I think workers and hopefully politicians are thinking about in terms of what the future of employment and keeping workers safe will look like. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in and, and joining us. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Ellie Gilland. Have a great new year. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek. I recently spoke with Valerie Jefferson, the president of ATU Local 1560 in New Orleans, about her struggle to defend her workers and her recent firing. Valerie, what are the, the conditions that transit workers in uh, New Orleans faced in the midst of a life and death emergency with that hurricane? We had operators, including myself, was working as standby. Our houses was flooded, was damaged, heavily damaged, holes in the, uh, hole in the ceiling. The foundation of the house moved. We had trees fell on our houses, a lot of debris. We was in the dark. We, we can, some areas we come in, it was come to our house because there was a lot of debris and a lot of wires hanging down and we was in the dark and we had no lights, no AC. We was suffering from everything else. It's like everybody else. We was looking for food, water, but RTA had needed us. RTA was very short of operators. They had between, I don't know, 50 and 80 operators. They were very short because the, the city was asking for a hundred and more operators, like a hundred operators. And op the RTA asked the union to help them out to get some operators. And Alex said, it doesn't matter the money. He doesn't, it doesn't mean about the money. Don't worry about the money. Get the operators here. We need operators. 
then I was telling them that the operators didn't fix too, but we still reach out to the operators and they should have been taking care of their family, taking care of themselves, taking care of their house because they was in the dark. Then when the operators still sacrificed and came for the needs of the city, for the need of RTA accident, who stayed in the dark at the hotel. It was very hot. Uh, we stayed in the, in the lounge, slept on the floor, slept in our car, slept in the garage, slept on a pool table, on a couch. We forsake our needs for the sake of the company and for the sake mostly for the uh, city citizens of New Orleans. And, and so you're saying that bus drivers, because they wanted to serve the people of New Orleans, gave up even making sure that their family was safe in order to protect the people of New Orleans and take Correct. these jobs. Yes, sir. That was exactly what I'm saying. And what did they promise you that you would be compensated for this or did they want you to work for free? No, they promised us that we were going to get paid for this. Matter of fact, we have a signed document that we was going to pay for this. Everybody's on standby, including supervisors, the clerks and the dispatcher. All of us was all together and they had agreed to to pay us. The ones who are on standby to pay us our regular run, just like we was at work a regular day, uh, 12-hour shift because we were working 12-hour shift from 6 to 6 and plus uh, 10 hours of a sentence pay, something like a sentence pay for coming in sacrifices. Then at the same time, RTA plus to supply us with room and board and with food, lunch, dinner. And But it, 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 it didn't happen like that, Steve. All operators didn't get fed. Uh, the ones who was out there uh, on the bus from six to six, a couple of them got left out and we don't have no way to get food. We don't have no way to get water. So they was very hungry until the end of the day. And did this Alex Wiggins, did, was he aware of the kind of treatment you were getting or lack yes. of respect? I told him myself. I told him what was going on. Then the leadership team that was there with me was on standby. We had a meeting with him. We kept him updated. We told him what was going on. And plus, he had a meeting with his staff every morning and every afternoon. So he was very aware of uh, what was going on. If if he wasn't where, if he wasn't sure, he saw us every day. See, I was there every day from August the 28th until they fired me. I was there with everybody, just like everybody else, because no one is not going to mistreat bloke of 1560 without me being there. I like being there with my members. So you wanted to stand up to your members to make sure that they were respected and you were respected as workers, as really frontline workers who are trying to defend the people of New Orleans in the midst of a catastrophe. And- why did they fire you? Why did he fire you? What was the reason he gave? Well, he gave the reason, said I was workplace violence, said I was threatening to him. He said, I said, it's on now, B. I do not use profanity. I can say what I mean and mean what I say without using profanity. And plus, I was walking away from him when I did say, it's on now. I got to call the leadership. We got to set a meeting. I, got, I need to contact my executive board. That's what I said. And we was like, we was even we was further than 20 feet apart then because I was exiting the the door. I wasn't nearby near him. So he fired me, terminated me for violence at the workplace. So you were terminated for violence at the workplace because you were actually standing up for yourself and your fellow members on the job. Correct. Correct. Because when they terminated the COO, that's who did the negotiate, that's who the union. Mostly did our 90% of meetings and negotiation with. So if you terminate this person, the next person 
who we going to have a meeting with. So we already had like verbal agreement. We had statements that we were going to do for in the near future for the betterment of the workplace environment. That's out the window. We're going to have quarterly meetings, event, I want to say workplace positively things to do with the uh, membership and with all the employees. Now that's out the door. And we're supposed to be going in a new direction for positive, for we can be productive. That's out the door. So thanks for joining us on Workweek. Thank you. Thank you for Thank having you. us, Steve. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Solidarity. Together we fight, together we win. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker. Here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Finally, nurses in Massachusetts reach a deal to end a strike going 285 days. Two guests on the show today. Melissa Cropper is going to be joining us. She's one of our regulars, Ohio Federation of Teachers. She is president of that organization. Melissa Cropper, welcome back to the show. How are we doing today? Doing well, thanks. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. Always a pleasure having you. Tell me the story about Menlo Park Academy, charter school for gifted students. So we had 96% of of the teachers at Menlo Park who said they want to form a union, came together, organized, contacted us. And are just were you know very insistent that they wanted to move quickly, forming a union there and and having their voices heard. Unfortunately, the Menlo Park administration is challenging us in court over jurisdiction over who, who should actually be overseeing the union election. So, for the past ten years, as we've been organizing charters, and we've organized seven of them in Ohio, and we've had a court ruling that said they fall under NLRB because of their privately managed, even though they receive public dollars. Mm-hmm. And now we've had the court hearing. We're waiting for a decision. And in the meantime, our our teachers there and teachers and staff there are adamant that they're going to continue to fight until they get a union. How long uh, were they organizing over there at uh, Menlo Park? This has actually been a, a fairly quick turnaround. It's been a, f- a few months, but when they contacted us, they already had over half their they had over half of their staff show up to the first organizing meeting that we had, which is you know really unusual. And they quickly contacted all the members there. They've got between fifty and sixty people. And they quickly contacted everybody, got everybody on board. Again, to have 96% of people file a card, that is an incredibly strong statement about the desire and urgency to organize. We're talking about investing in our children, and this all segues into the community learning centers. We've got to do a better job, and it's my understanding. Randy Weingarten, the national president of the American Federation of Teachers, visited Cincinnati to tour what uh, what they're doing down there can you uh, give us a, a rundown of of this i guess it's an experiment down there that is working right yeah it's a program or a way of doing school that they've been doing since early 2000s which again is taking resources that are available in the community often publicly funded, but sometimes privately funded too, and putting them where children have access to them. So again, oftentimes children live in neighborhoods where they can't easily go see a doctor, or there's not a mental health specialist close by, or like I said, there's not internet access. So it's a matter of finding where those resources are, 
placing them in the school so that children can access them whenever they need it. Take internet access, like you mentioned. A story I, I like to tell often is about Euler School in Cincinnati, where you know someone, one, one of the businesses down there offered to give every student in, this, in the district a laptop to help them out, which is a wonderful gesture. However, it, students didn't the students didn't have internet access couldn't afford internet access so the laptop was useless so instead what the district what the community learning center concept did was say in addition to giving these laptops why don't you put hotspots around the city so that kids can access the internet so that's what they did they put up hotspots put up towers on buildings and everything around the city so that kids could then access the internet so that's a broader example of what community learning centers can do but that same school, Euler, also has like a, a dental clinic, a vision clinic, mental health specialists on site, child child care facilities for children ages like starting with like six weeks up until they start school. It's every service that you could think of that children might children and families might need, and making them accessible. Another example in Cincinnati is. Um, you know, you've got neighborhoods where you got, for example, a large Guatemalan community. So putting in a, a language lab for parents in the community to, to learn the language, to learn English, but also for the school to understand the needs of those types of families. Yeah, it's a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood concept that works really well. Step-by-step. Step. All right, Melissa, we're going to leave it on that note. You take care. Best of the holiday season to you, your staff, your family. We'll talk to you in January, okay? Thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. Ryan Zinn, Fairworld Project's political director, is going to speak to Shafali Sharma with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy to break down how the industrial dairy system plays a significant role in climate change. Yeah, my name is Shefali Sharma. I'm based in Berlin in Germany. I'm the director of the European office of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Shefali and the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy released their Milking the Planet report. That report pins down the emissions of these mega dairy companies. It attaches names to those emissions and their consequences for communities around the globe. Yeah, it's it was quite telling how the global dairy platform and how some of the big dairy companies responded to our report. There was like a big statement made by the global dairy platform, which has all the big guys in it. Its chair of the board is the Dairy Farmers of America, chief executive, president and chief executive officer of this global dairy platform and they were not at all happy with what we published and issued like a two-page statement on our report. So we were quite happy that our report did its job. Big Dairy objects to having their massive emissions growth revealed for the public to see. After all, they're used to hiding behind the labels of other brands. They claim that their emissions just grew because of all of those mergers and acquisitions. But Shefali and team crunched the numbers. Big Dairy's emissions went up more than the amount of milk they processed did. And here's the even sketchier part. It's how they claim that they're addressing their problem. Instead of actually cutting emissions, they're redefining terms and talking about emissions intensity reduction targets. What does that even mean? 
Shafali broke it down in an interview she did when they released the Milking the Planet report. It's a very important question because this is the key thrust of where agribusiness is going in terms of saying, hey, we're doing something about the climate. It's about reducing emissions per unit of food produced. It's about how many gallons of milk is the dairy farmers of America responsible for. If you are reducing uh, emissions per gallon, which means maybe you are cleaning up your operations or your transport or something as a company, but you're doing nothing about your supply chain. So each year you have a thousand more animals per farm, right? If you keep increasing the number of animals, your overall emissions are gonna go up. Even if you're reducing per unit, at the end of the day, what matters for the climate is whether you're reducing your overall emissions. Dairy emissions are going up faster than a lot of other sectors. There needs to be urgent action, not just false solutions and glossy labeling claims to address the problem. There needs to be this reckoning to integrate in a holistic manner our agricultural policies and our climate policies to ensure that we can actually create and revive more decentralized dairying, uh, but we can also make it cleaner because of the impact that it has on the environment, on biodiversity, but also on the climate. Because all this consolidation, all this pumping out large quantities of milk, paying farmers below the cost of production has just increased poverty and increased emissions. I asked Shafali how her team is going about their goal of bringing together agriculture and climate policies. We are targeting the U.S., we're targeting the European Union to say, hey, you guys have large chunks of public money and you have an amazing regulatory machine. Why are you not using them to create an agricultural turnaround? You should be using that public money not to perpetuate these extractive models of production, but rather a transformative model of agriculture, what in the U.S. many refer to as regenerative agriculture. We talk about agroecology here in Europe and internationally as well. We can do that, and you can set clear targets for this. And then you should be regulating these emissions. You should be regulating the impact it has on the environment. This is not being done adequately on in either side. Ultimately, when you like mass produce anything, whether it's quinoa or avocados or whatever, you're going to start to see a huge <laughs> ecological impact. So size, scale matters. Diversity of our food matters. How, you know, where do we source it matters. I think this is where the corporate consolidation issue is a huge issue. The corporate consolidation fuels that scale. And we need to downsize both our consumption habits, obviously, but also our production. We need to descale. One of the big obstacles to challenging corporate power and scale is a simple lack of information. Big dairy companies lean heavily on the wholesome rule image. Check their websites and maybe you'll see one or two success stories of farmers who are committed to the best practices. But it's hard to know what's actually going on behind the marketing. What is still stunning is the lack of transparency of the industry in terms of just being able to get some basic numbers of like how many animals do you have in production in your supply chain? How do you hold companies accountable? I think not just dairy companies, but any company. I think we're weak in governance in terms of corporate actors and how do we hold them accountable for the, the very real public costs from their production models. And that's the ultimate question that I think we face in this coming decade. As we are running out of time to limit our carbon footprint, we need to find ways to be able to, to regulate companies in a way that allows future generations to continue living on a healthy planet and 
That's what it boils down to. Welcome to Union City Radio for Tuesday, December 21st. When the University of Maryland abruptly canceled winter commencement activities last week due to a sharp increase in COVID cases on campus, AFSME Maryland, which represents campus workers across the state, had this pointed response. This is what happens when you refuse to bargain with the workers' demand for more protections for themselves, the students, and the community. Awful. And, in a follow-up to a story we reported last week, Politics and Prose has apparently hired union-busting law firm Jones Day to fight their own employees, who want to organize a union at the local progressive bookstore. For complete details on this week's labor calendar, go to dclabor.org and click on Calendar. Today's labor quote is by labor lawyer David Borer, who tweeted, Jones Day bills at something around $1,000 per hour. Bookstores have always decried their tight profit margins, but when it comes to beating their employees out of joining the union, it's, we'll spare no expense. I support the Politics and Prose Workers Union. In today's labor history, on this date in 1921, the Supreme Court ruled that picketing was unconstitutional. Chief Justice and former President William Howard Taft declared that picketing was in part, quote, an unlawful annoyance and hurtful nuisance, unquote. Because the Union City Radio is supported by our friends at Union Plus. You can find out more at unionplus.org. This has been Chris Garlock. See you on the line. This is a public service announcement with guitar. Hey, it's Chris Garlock from Your Rights at Work. Our show this week will be a red carol from the fabulous San Francisco Mime Troupe. But first, just a quick reminder that during this season of lights and giving, we ask that you remember WPFW and the sustenance we provide to our community. You can give the gift of WPFW during our year-end membership campaign. Just visit WPFW.org and click on Donate Now or Call 1-800-222-9739. We wish you peace, truth, and solidarity now and in the new year. And now, the San Francisco Mime Troupe presents A Red Carol. Marley was dead to begin with. That's how this story all the time starts, ain't it? Marley was dead. Me some guy you ain't never heard of and don't give a damn about was dead. To begin with. Dead and didn't nobody come to the funeral either. So that tells you two things. Marley wasn't well loved and he was dead. To begin with. 
Marley had been partners with a fella named Ebenezer Scrooge for I don't know how many years. And even Scrooge wasn't too cut up with Marley being dead. And Scrooge, oh, he was a tight, tight-fisted man. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covered his old sinner. There's a lot of words to say one thing. Ebenezer Scrooge was a banker. Yeah, I bet you didn't know that. How many times you hear this story never picked up on that? Mr. Marley's dead. He died seven years ago. Seven years ago this very night. Mr. Scrooge, in this charitable season, it's only fitting that those of us who are well off try to raise a fund to help the less fortunate. Less fortunate? Oh, you may not believe it, but in a country, rich is ours. Millions are still in need of basic necessities. <sighs> Despite... Our wealth millions are hungry and homeless. Are there no prisons? Well, yes, there are plenty of prisons. Uh, the workhouses, they're still in operation. The poor law, still in effect. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill still turning? You don't know what those are, do you? The treadmill, the poor laws. Every Christmas you hear some actor say it. The poor laws were rules against giving money or food to the poor and hungry. Laws that said they couldn't get any relief except inside a workhouse. Workhouses were prisons the government built for those who couldn't find work, who couldn't pay their debts. A prison for being poor. And where the rules also said, keep us hungry and cold, so the poor wouldn't get dependent on the generosity of the workhouse. The starvation, the beatings, and worse, all for our own good, they said. And since they had free labor... Why not put it to use? The treadmill. The treadmill was a giant wheel made of wood and iron used to grind corn and wheat. And to make money for whoever managed the workhouse. The poor were chained to the outside of the wheel. And all day they climbed until their feet and hands are bloody, until their bones were cracking and their throats were raw with screaming. Till we don't care if we get crushed. Till we ain't even human no more. All for our own good. I'm glad to hear of it. I was afraid from what you said that uh, something had stopped them in their useful course. Mr. Scrooge, Christmas is when our brothers and sisters feel most destitute. Brothers and sisters. So we're asking those who can afford it, men of means like yourself, to help us raise money for the poor and homeless. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone. My taxes support the organizations I mentioned. Let those who are too lazy to work go there. Many can't go there, sir. Many would rather die. If they would rather die, then they should do it and decrease the surplus population. Oh, Ebenezer, no more work tonight. Hurry, hurry. We have to close the desk, shutter up the windows, sweep the floor, and clear space. Space? For what? For what? For what? For dancing, Ebenezer. It's Christmas Eve. Now everyone dance. Trail band, then we are share of this earth. 
to live off their own brains and sweat, not live off somebody else's. Used to be, they knew ain't for two classes. Us that work in the factories, fields, and offices, and them that owns those factories, fields, and offices. And the sooner us workers are proud to be us and stop trying to be them, the sooner we get together, that's when we'll get and keep what we've been working for! A Red Carol is based on A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens and was written and directed by Michael Gene Sullivan, featuring traditional music with additional lyrics and arrangement by Daniel Savio, strings by Patrick Byers, percussion by David Rokish, keyboards by Daniel Savio with additional mandolin by Amos Glick, audio engineering and sound design by Taylor Gonzalez. A Red Carol featured Mike McShane as Scrooge, Michael Gene Sullivan as Bob Cratchit, Felina Brown as Mrs. Cratchit, Andre Amaradico as Fred, Lisa Hori Garcia as Belle, Almost Glick as Fezziwig, Jerry and Monroe as the ghost of Jacob Marley, Keiko Shimasato Carrero as the ghost of Christmas past, Wilma Bonet as the ghost of Christmas present, and Milo Carter Daniels as Tiny Tim. historical troughs of the working class movement in this country, measured almost any way you want to measure it. Union membership, strike activity, long-term decline in real wages, on and on like that. But as my friend and, and, and colleague Jonah Furman says, the decline is over. It's dead. This week's show explores the question of how Striketober and the Great Resignation, two seemingly contradictory actions by American workers, happen simultaneously. Union organizing and strikes surged this fall at the same time that millions of workers up and quit their jobs. Labor historian Gabriel Winnen put the current labor upheaval in historical context at a December 10th labor history discussion hosted by the East Side Freedom Library in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's East Side Freedom Library co-executive director Peter Ratcliffe to start off today's show. I'm not working here no more Yeah, my woman done left and she took all the reasons I was working for And you better not try to stand in my way when I'm walking out the door You can take this job and shove it I'm not working here no more Welcome everyone to the monthly labor history discussion 
in the virtual world of the Eastside Freedom Library. Tonight, we're fortunate that Gabe Winant is with us. Gabe teaches history at the University of Chicago and is the author of a widely read and being discussed recent book called The Next Shift, which talks about the decline of manufacturing and the rise of healthcare and services and the consequences that has for the labor movement. So I'll just start by saying that it's not news to anyone here, right, that we are at a deep, in the grand scheme, we're in a deep historical trough of the working class movement in this country, measured almost any way you want to measure it. Union membership, strike activity, long-term decline in real wages, on and on. And that has been underway in some form, arguably since the early 70s, certainly since the early 80s. And I think it's no longer even really right to say that the labor movement, the formal labor movement is declining. But as my friend and, and, and colleague Jonah Furman says, the decline is over. It's dead in many ways. And as we once knew it. And at the same time, like, there's a kind of ongoing question that folks who care about this and have been paying attention to it for a long time have asked, which is, okay, we know that the labor movement has this kind of cyclical history, right? That it doesn't just grow and shrink steadily, but rather grows in extraordinary moments of rapid upheaval and dynamism in the 1880s, 1910s, 1930s, 1960s, and 70s. And in between those moments, there's all, there are always deep troughs of defeat and failure and setback. And so how should we orient ourselves? In some ways, the last few years, in certain respects, is a something of what looks like an uptick maybe in, this, in strike activity. And this really started in 2018, 2019, particularly with the teacher strike wave that for ed movement of those years. A little bit other industries also. There's a GM strike in 2019, although not particularly high in the grand scheme of things, still climbed higher than it had been since the mid-1980s. That seemed like a good sign. Then it fell off quite steeply during the pandemic. Then we had this thing. So that first got called Striketober, and now it's gotten extended in time. And it's really remarkable and novel in some ways and limited in others. What's remarkable and novel about it is that it seems to reflect, so the kind of uptick in strike activity in the last few months, and in general militancy, even where it hasn't resolved, resulted in strikes, like in the case of IATSE, for example, the Hollywood Technical Workers Union, who voted at 99% to go on strike with 90% turnout um, and then settled the contract narrowly shortly thereafter without striking. Similar cases have happened in other industries where there's observable militancy, even if it doesn't result in a strike. So that I think is the basic cause of striketober or whatever you want to call it. But I think while that's very exciting, we also have to acknowledge with some honesty, the limits of what we've seen so far, that the total number of workers who have been on strike this in striketober is, I believe, under 100,000. There were moments in American history, previous strike waves, like in 1945, 1946, or in 1919, when 5%, 10% of the entire population of the country, not just the workforce, but the population participated. So millions of people, multiple general strikes in years like that. And we're not anywhere near that. Right? We're not even really numerically near 2018, 2019 with its giant teacher strikes. But I think we have to, one, start off by acknowledging that the labor movement is too small, obviously is much, much too small. And so what would once have taken the form of, of strike activity, a collective action today for millions of people takes the form of turning down job offers or, you know, quitting shitty job, pre-existing 
broad-based labor movement there to channel that discontent, really. I mean, just not enough people are anywhere near a union. But two, that itself, I think, is rooted in a deep problem that has to do with the kind of structural sources of the disorganization of the U.S. working class, which go back in some way centuries, obviously have to do with the legacy of slavery and indigenous dispossession, have to do with the legacy of patriarchy in profound ways. Those deep struck tectonic forces get institutionalized in new ways in every generation. Let me get Aaron and Aaron's story about the bookstore workers into the conversation too. I The way Gabe was saying is this might be a wave, but for me, I just don't, I don't see American workers going back to the status quo. I just don't feel like us going back. I just, I feel like, I just feel like workers are just sick of it. They're just sick of it. There has to be a systematic change. That has to happen. I just don't feel like we're going back. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working no more. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps other folks to find the show. Special thanks this week to the Eastside Freedom Library for hosting the December 10th Gabe Winnett discussion and co-executive director Peter Ratcliffe for providing the audio file. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music includes three versions of the Johnny Paycheck classic Take This Job and Shove It by the Moonshine Bandits, the Dead Kennedys, and Cannabis with Biz Markey. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Mel Smith and me, and our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>